Welcome to The Painted Garden with Kimberly Trowbridge. This is a podcast about color theory and the creative life. Hello, sentient beings. Welcome back to The Painted Garden. Thank you for joining me. Last week, I talked about the peony theater in my backyard and kind of creating a puppet theater with her and watching her just expansively open in the warm sunlight. I want to start today by talking about the red smoke bush. In my backyard, I years ago planted a small cherry tree that was supposed to be a dwarf cherry tree, but over the past few years she has really filled out and her arms have gotten so long and tall and stretched out and the girth of her trunk has really filled in and she has a beautiful little kind of slope just as she meets the soil, uh, just kind of like a little hip thrust. She's very attractive. And it's underneath that cherry tree uh, that the legs, the mannequin legs, sit. Um, If facing it frontally, the mannequin legs are just to the left of her trunk. And then over to the right is the red smoke bush, also planted years ago. Uh, She has gone through many awesome variations. A smoke bush is a type of plant that you can clip back a lot and kind of prune and really shape in a lot of different ways. Sometimes you'll see them a little bit lower to the ground if they're trimmed each year in a kind of wonderful rainbow kind of small bush um, or almost topiary. And then for me, I really let mine go pretty wild um, doing some selective pruning on some of the uh, larger branches. But um, over the last couple of years, she has just gotten so leggy, these just long pinkish red, uh, very smooth and almost uninterrupted vine-like branches uh, that get so long and tall that they droop over. And she's gotten so big that uh, several of her large, long, giraffe-like necks with plumes at the end um, have gone all the way up taller than the backyard fence, and they bob their heads on the other side of the fence in my neighbor's yard. She's just fantastic. And I've gotten in the habit lately, uh, we've had some really uh, beautiful sunny mornings and afternoons sprinkled with overcast days like today. But when that light moves through that corridor of my backyard, I've been loving setting up a chair underneath the smoke bush. And again, imagine these just long dangling arms and legs. And so there's plenty of space, a kind of canopy underneath her where these bobbing leggy vines and soft round leaves and then the kind of what is known as the smoke these just very delicate uh, little seedlings almost like lace in the shape of a cone and those are a kind of pinkish orange color and so setting my chair up underneath her in this kind of bower of these bobbing plumages Um, with the light flickering through, has been an incredible 
uh, theatrical production. And so I've been spending time in the theater of the Red Smoke Bush. One of her most distinctive characteristics, almost beyond anything else, even beyond in some ways the shape that I'm describing, her form. But more than that is the color. She is like a prismatic diamond, uh, a diamond that has kind of a ruby color to it. And as the light passes through her prismatic self, she gently scatters, shatters into a billion prismatic tones. Sitting underneath her, seeing the light actually pass through many of the leaves, the translucency of the leaf just blossoms into a kind of red-orange flame that is impossibly more saturated, bright, and lighter than anything else in your visual plane. And then there are the leaves that are being hit more opaquely, so you're not seeing the light through them, but the light touching or on them, or like today in an overcast situation where not a lot of uh, lumens are moving through it, but rather the silveriness of the day, the opacity of the native color of some of the lower-lying branches, and just the leaves themselves have this almost grayish silver color to them that goes from a deep indigo violet to even a kind of deep forest kind of green that starts to move into a blue but imagine it you know dusted with silver like a kind of neutralized silver so it's very muted and dull, but at the same time dark and holding that deep color somehow without in any way getting near the bright saturated tones of those translucent leaves. Like they're not touching that range of light in any way and yet holding this powerful, powerful space in the shadows still somehow so deeply colorful. But so this theater of the smoke bush is, in one word, I guess, overwhelming, to be honest. <laughs> I'm so delighted by her in all of her manifestations that at times, I can hardly look at her, like she has to remain almost peripheral uh, because of her magnitude. Um, but her presence is strong and deep, and I've often thought of her as a kind of rainbow dragon. And early on, I would always describe her as my wily beast. Wily seemed like the perfect word for her, um, simultaneously uh, kind of a, a wildness and a 
sneakiness, uh, something to do with her legginess and the mystery of her rainbow. The next thing I want to talk about is teaching, more specifically, just the transition that happened. Um, I had transitioned all my programming, of course, online and over Zoom, uh, both for my atelier and then my continuing advanced seminar. And so all of my contact with my students through these kind of weekly lectures, even some figure drawing sessions, and then a lot of um, one-on-one consultations over Zoom, um, really using that format to kind of lean in and create a true intimacy uh, with people um, as a mentor really wanting to be very clear that I'm witnessing you in a way that seemed necessary in this context because we're not, we don't have those physical cues. We don't have, say, the tone of a room, um, the vibrancy of bodies in a space together, uh, reading each other's signs, feeling supported. or And so with kind of the loss of that, um, trying to find a way to really lean in, um, and not consciously. I think it's something that really happened quite naturally for a lot of us. But so with the end of my term, um, I was just kind of starting to get like really antsy, like, oh, give me summer break. Like, I need to be working on my museum show. I've got this big painting project in my studio. And just about that time of really sort of sinking into that, uh, my students really leaned towards me and gave so much back to me. Um, one of the really wonderful experiences was I had, um, in that final week of my atelier, I asked my students to give short presentations on their work um, for newer students just concentrating on kind of current work where you're at with your practice and kind of plans for the summer and then with my graduating students um, had them do a little bit more of a retrospective kind of over the past couple years um, just how how, how are you able to trace your thought and your narrative of a, as a maker? And so I set up that last week for me to enjoy their growth, which is selfishly for me as a mentor exactly what I need as not just an ending note to the year, but as a beginning note, as a bell to ring towards the future, uh, these incredible individuals that... I get to work with. Um, and I'm so grateful to all of you that have reached out in your own awesome ways uh, to let me know that what I do uh, means something to you. And I've truly just been blown away by my community. And that's in such a huge way what keeps me going. Um, 
on every level, um, as a teacher, as an artist, as a person, as a friend, um, the generosity um, from people reaching out and letting each other know that I see you and what you do means something um, and that that can be a mirror, a really, really important mirror. And so teaching, like the smoke bush, is a bower of plumages that changes tone and direction and color and spins around into a zillion magical relationships. As you know, the project I've been working on, my big How to Grow a Garden production piece, <laughs> five large panels that I've been executing in my studio of the theater of my entire backyard. Lot of ups and downs and questions and inquiries and frustrations uh, through this process uh, that indeed continues. Um, I giggle sometimes about how I think I have any control over the time that a painting needs to take to unfold. And so deadlines are a little funny. But the earnestness and the energy that I am experiencing with this project, the focus has been really wonderful. Um, I wanted to talk to you about kind of the process of chiseling or kind of building or formulating the kind of envelope or universe that this project sits inside. And so kind of how I think about the boundaries of the project in a way and how I, in a sense, create these kind of rules uh, for the development of the project. These rules, of course, are a kind of stream of conscious, a kind of mingling of clear conscious thought and the subconscious developing its own parameters. And so I am reflecting on this and articulating it, but it is an ongoing process or an ongoing poem that's being written. It seems to teeter-totter on the edge of need for structure and form and need for change and the unknown. Some of the questions that I've grappled with along the way include, is there a way to plan for the unknown, to make preparations for it? Is there a kind of net that we can cast that will help us navigate as we move forward, but that will not hold us bound? Can we build a structure that is held together by way of growth? Can we create a practice that allows honesty, joy, and discovery 
to be the source from which all other relationships form. In response to these questions, there is another voice in my head, and it goes to the tune of Wallace Stevens's kind of epic poem called Notes Toward a Supreme Fiction. So the voice in my head that keeps sort of collecting data and coming up with the rules in response to these unknown questions about my process have taken on the tone of this Wallace Stevens poem. Um, Notes Toward a Supreme Fiction has three main parts, Uh, the first being it must be abstract, it must change, and then finally, it must give pleasure. And so the list that has been in my head to kind of organize the requirements have been it must be generative, it must be cumulative, and it must give pleasure. And so this idea of must be generative for me comes down to needing a kind of infinity of steps of research that I can take that the process that I become a part of must constantly generate information, inspiration, um, expression, desire. But in a way, more importantly, it must constantly generate material, okay? It must generate drawings, collages, material forms of excitement and research, okay? So that is number one. It must be generative. The second one for me is it must be cumulative, meaning that all of this generative material and form must give me a sense of building, Um, I know from my own past and anxieties that I need a kind of structure, some sort of structure in place that is both strong and elusive, uh, where all of the signs that I'm reading and all the work that I'm making is cumulatively making me a better person, making me have more self-understanding, a more empathy for the world, um, that cumulatively I want to feel that the process is adding something, adding up to something that is more than its separate parts. I need to feel that Something better is being built. The pleasure part, of course. That's the part that has meaning and sustenance and has a kind of vegetal quality that you want, that you want to ingest, that you want healthily and joyfully to be part of your life and your existence. Pleasure, joy, And of course, when we allow ourselves to enter the pleasure of the moment, we are porous, we are open to the arrival of the unknown. 
And so, of course, that is our most creative and intelligent place to be. And so the process, of course, must give pleasure. It must give us presentness and the opportunity to awake within the moment. So those were the main three that I've come up with. It must be generative, it must be cumulative, and it must give pleasure. Uh, But one that I haven't, it's almost like it fits into every other category, like they all do in a way, they become a kind of prism, um, is of course it must allow for change. Um, That has been something that has been crucial in this project for me, that shifts and scale need to be allowed constantly and at every step of the way. Um, that new ideas, new concepts, new methods, new techniques need to be allowed to come in and play at any step within the development. And also thinking of the garden itself. The garden is always morphing and changing, and that doesn't diminish the prior stages, but you cannot hold it back. You can only sort of let go and watch it change. And so the painting, of course, had to be that also. I want to read to you a section from the Wallace Stevens poem. But before that, I want to share on a personal note how Wallace Stevens has been an influence on my tone and my inner thoughts. In 99 and 2000, I was living in Canterbury, England, studying at the University of Kent, and I was studying literary modernism. And that's a time when I really dove quite deeply into James Joyce, T.S. Eliot, Virginia Woolf, and somehow kind of a complement to all of that was reading Wallace Stevens and his kind of retrospective, almost philosophical inner voice that could accompany change, that could accompany the shift in things as they are. I recognized this inner voice as part of the lineage of Louise Glick's poems as well. It was that voice that I could really identify with. Wallace Stevens has been an important influence on the shape of my thought. I moved to England that year with a very heavy piece of carry-on baggage. It was my little black Corona typewriter named Poe, and she joined me overseas for a year, and we wrote many poems, and I even wrote all of my final, uh, final term essays on her keys. So I'm going to read to you one of my favorite sections from Wallace Stevens' Notes toward a supreme fiction. 
It's from the first section entitled It Must Be Abstract, and this is part seven. It feels good as it is without the giant, a thinker of the first idea. Perhaps the truth depends on a walk around a lake, a composing as the body tires, a stop to see hepatica, a stop to watch a definition growing certain and a weight within that certainty, a rest in the swags of pine trees bordering the lake. Perhaps there are times of inherent excellence, as when the cock crows on the left and all is well, incalculable balances, at which a kind of Swiss perfection comes, and a familiar music of the machine sets up at Schwarmeray, not balances that we achieve, but balances that happen, as a man and woman meet and love forthwith. Perhaps there are moments of awakening, extreme, fortuitous, personal, in which we more than awaken, sit on the edge of sleep, as on an elevation, and behold the academies like structures in a mist. Wow. Thank you, Wallace Stevens, for that inquiry and that tone. We're going to begin next episode with a rereading of this same section. And I want to share with you, kind of stanza by stanza, how this language relates so closely to my own creative practice. In the meantime, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a comment, leave me a review, or better yet, email me with a question, something you might like addressed on a future podcast episode. You can email me directly at info at KimberlyTrowbridge.com or simply go to my website, KimberlyTrowbridge.com, and email me through that portal. Thank you again for joining me on The Painted Garden. Have a wonderful week and take very, very good care of your creative selves and make sure frequently to notice something in the natural world. Just stop and notice it.